Today we turn to the prophet Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. We've been this summer looking through what are called the minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because their books are a little bit smaller, though Zechariah might be a little bit different. We're definitely not reading the whole book. It's 14 chapters, but I would encourage you to read the minor prophets and to take the things that we've been studying here and apply them as you, as you, um, as you, as you read the, the scriptures. Today we're going to look at chapter 3 of Zechariah, and I'll explain a little bit more the context of that as we get into the sermon. So let's listen to God's holy word. It's a vision that Zechariah saw, and we will see uh, how the Lord spoke to him and to the people in Zechariah chapter 3. Let's listen carefully to God's holy inspired word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's holy inspired word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you that you are pleased to, you have been pleased to create us and make us for your glory. And we pray, praise you, O oh Lord, that you've been pleased to speak to us through your word, that we have it in so many forms, in so many ways, and we have the opportunity to gather around it today to, to listen to what you would say to us. I thank you for the people that you brought here, for their desire to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them and that you would use the work of your servant to, to enable your people to grow in grace, to see you with the great things you have done for them, to be challenged to humble themselves before you and to move forward into what you have for them. Well, Lord, speak to us by your spirit, the same spirit who has spoke long ago through the prophets. Speak to us today and we praise you, O Holy Spirit, who with the Son and the Father is glorified forever and ever. Amen. So a little bit of review as we look at the prophets. The, remember what I said the big question the prophets is? It is this, how does the world survive? How does the world survive? There's a sense judgment, wrath is coming on the world because of its sin, because of its injustices, because it's neglected God, because of the service of idols. And so the question the prophets are asking is, how does the world survive? 
Now, for, in order to really appreciate the message of the prophets, we have to get that point. And we have to see how we're involved in it. Now, a lot of times when we look at sin, our tendency is to see bad things that are done and see those things as being out there. as something other people do. Injustice as something other people do. But what the prophets saw was that when, when God dealt with sin, he was dealing not only with the world out there, but also with the people of Israel and with the prophets themselves. Isaiah said when he confronted God, not, man, these, got a, these are just bad people. Sorry, I have to live among them. He did say they were bad, but he said, woe is me, for I am undone. And you see the prophets, they see God and they realize that not just the world, but themselves are involved in sin. And if we understand that, if we begin to see our own pride, our own injustice, the things that we do wrong, the, how little we've done with what the Lord has given us, then we will have cause to humble ourselves, but then we will also appreciate the message that the prophets give to us. And we'll start to see the answer to the question, how does the world survive? Now, Zechariah is really divided into two sections. He has eight visions that he sees that are very graphic, that, is, that gives us images of, in order to teach us what the Lord is doing. And they're very interesting. Some are harder to understand than others. And then the second half, he sort of applies that and he calls the people to repent and to believe. There's a lot of clear statements of what God is going to do in the future. But Zechariah 3, in particular, that we just read, is one of the clearest answers in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, to the question of how does the world survive? How do, how do we obtain forgiveness? How do we stand before God in light of our sin? And so that's where we're going to look and see the message that God has for us to teach us how we can stand before a holy God, how we can be accepted and forgiven. Now, he does this through a picture that he gives of Joshua, the high priest. And what he says about them, you see in verse 8, is he tells us that these people are not just there for themselves. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua. You and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. In other words, God is saying, you are a sign. You're a picture of what God is going to do in the future. And so that's what we want to see is how is Joshua a sign? And he is a sign in two ways in this book, in this chapter. On the one hand, he's a sign of God's people and their condition before the Lord. And then, in another way, he's a sign of God's priest and what God will do through his great high priest. So, he's a sign of God's people and he's a sign of God's priest. And so, we're going to consider these men, symbolic of things to come, from those two angles. So, let's look first at Joshua as a sign of God's people. So, Joshua is the high priest ordained by God to stand before him on behalf of the people of God. And what we see in this passage is Joshua in the temple serving before the Lord. But he's not alone. There's another person there. And he's called the accuser or Satan. And so who is this Satan? Who is this accuser? Well, in Revelation 12, verse 10, he is, he is said to be the one who stands 
the accuser, he's called the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. So he's like a, a prosecuting attorney who's bringing up all the wrong things that the people of God have done. He's the accuser. Now, this Satan is, is a being that was created by God. And what we know is that when God created the world, he created not only human beings as rational creatures, but he created other rational creatures that we call angels. Some of those angels obeyed the Lord and were confirmed in their righteousness. Other angels disobeyed the Lord and fell into sin and were rejected by him. Their leader is called Satan or, or the devil. And what we see here is that one of the things he does is he points out the sin of God's people. Now, this may be a strange way to think for a lot of people, to think that there is Satan and other rational beings that we don't see, that we call angels. But one thing we have to say is that we look at the Bible, it's absolutely 100% clear that this is true, that, this is, it's, that angels and demons exist. They're really there. They are part of this world. You really cannot accept the revelation of God and deny that that is true. In addition, we can see that, that uh, this is confirmed by the fact that most cultures have recognized that they were there. And, and it's so in many, even in our culture where we tend to deny the supernatural and anything we can't measure scientifically, that in other cultures it's recognized to be the case. And so there's a very strong sense of that in other cultures. So there's a sense there. There. In addition, we also just thinking about why we can, how we can see this and confirm this. Oftentimes we look at evil in the world and it seems like it takes on a life of its own. It's like it goes beyond what any one person is thinking or planning. And we need to see that that's in part the work of the spiritual forces of darkness. And that's why the Apostle Paul says when we think about the problems in this world, we shouldn't just think about the things we see with our eyes. we got to see that beyond that what God teaches us is that there, we wrestle not, as he says, against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. So that's the Satan. Now the interesting thing about Satan here is that what he was saying was actually correct. He's accusing Joshua of being sinful. And Satan is right. That's what we see. In this passage, what does it tell us? It says that there the Lord, that the, that the Joshua the high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing his right side was there to accuse him. And it says in verse 3 that Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And so the filthy clothes represent the corruption of sinfulness. Not just that they're, they're dirty clothes and that that's, that's the point, but that rather it points beyond to the sinfulness and the corruption of human nature as it rebels against God and goes its own way and falls into worse and worse things. That's what they look like before God. Now, when we see this, it'd be easy for us just to pass over, over this and think like, um, as we look at this, to think, oh, you know, so he had dirty clothes. No, no big deal. You know, I have a lot of dirty clothes and so on. But we got to see this from the perspective of the people who would have heard this. They took the temple very seriously. And they took its rites very seriously. And, and they did all kinds of ceremonies in order to make sure that everything was done right and everything was cleaned in the right way and so on. And so when they see Joshua there, they're seeing this guy did it totally wrong. He's got these filthy clothes and you don't mess with the temple. 
because they were because God this is where God's presence is and people can actually die if they misuse it and so here Joshua is standing in the temple with his dirty clothes and they would have been horrified but what the Lord wanted to teach them is that what you should be horrified about is the fact that you come before God in your sin because this is what is the reality as Haggai said, the book we just looked at, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. And so they're standing before God in these dirty clothes, which represents that they are in big trouble. They are going to die. Now, this does not mean that Israel or Joshua was any worse than anybody else. They are a picture of the whole world. And the whole world is said to be lost in sin. God says very clearly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And each one of us knows, if we look into our conscience, that we have not done what God asked us to do, that we've not become what he's called us to become. Instead, we've put our efforts into becoming something totally different. We've done all kinds of wrong things. And even when we do the right things, we see that corruption is right there with us. And so we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all are like Joshua, standing before the Lord with dirty clothes, and we are in trouble because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And they would have understand this looking at the temple. You do not come in there with dirty clothes and go into the presence of the Lord. You could die. That's what, that's what they would have seen in this place. So this is no small matter. And we see that this is truth, right? Satan is telling the truth here. He's saying, look at the sin. It's there. It's not, you can't deny it. But thanks be to God... That's not the only truth. And this, the point is here, they do want them to see our sin. We can't appreciate God's grace if we don't see our sin. But we not only need to see the truth of our sin, we also need to see the truth of God's grace. There is another person who is there in the temple. And he's called the Lord, Jehovah. And it's interesting because Jehovah, the proper name for God, he says, the Lord rebuke you, speaking of the Lord as if he's another person. And indeed, that's what we're seeing here. There is one person who is Jehovah speaking of another person saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And here and in many places in the Old Testament and the New, we see that God is not only one being, but he is also three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we call the Trinity. Now, this person who is called the Lord is also called the angel of the Lord. Now, sometimes in the Bible, the angel can refer to the spiritual beings that we've talked about, but at other times it refers to a manifestation of the triune God, namely the second person of the Trinity. And we see there it's a manifestation of Christ before he became a human being. He will come as the angel of the Lord. And it's actually all over the Old Testament. So it's a really interesting thing to see. But what is, what is the second person of the Trinity, whom we call Jesus? What is he doing here? He's interceding. He's praying. He's saying something against the accusations of Satan. When Satan comes with his accusations, Jesus says, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, turn your, your accusations into nothing. And so we see here a clear picture that even before he became a human being, Christ, the Lord, was praying for his people. And that's why anyone was saved before Christ came into the world and after. 
As it says in Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And that is what he's doing here. This is a picture of Jesus praying for his people, interceding for them. Now does that mean that Jesus ignores the truth and reality of sin? No, he sees it. But what he says is he's going to give them a new set of clothes. He says, take off the dirty garments and then put fine garments on him. And then he puts a clean turban on his head. And so there, instead of standing before God with his sin, there is Joshua standing before God, clean, pure, able to be in the presence of God because his sin is taken away and because he is clothed with righteousness. And so here is the question of survival put in the terms of clothes. How does the world survive? Well, God gives us clean clothes so we can stand in his presence. That's the message. And Joshua is a sign of what God does for anyone who accepts that gift of clean clothes. Consider this a little more deeply. Here is Joshua, who has dirty clothes. He does not have clean clothes. He's not able to procure them. He's not able to do anything to get them. And then God gives them to him clean clothes as a totally free gift. That's what's happening here. God says to people like you and like me who, are, who have dirty clothes on, who have not done what the Lord has required of us, who have not become what God has required to us, who have thought many wrong things, who have said many wrong things, who have done many wrong things, and he says, here, I'm going to put clean clothes on you as a free gift. You stand forgiven, you stand clean, you stand righteous before me. And it's an amazing thing. I remember a conversation I had with a woman many years ago. And we were talking about what it was to say, to have experienced God's forgiveness and eternal life as a gift. And I said, now, do you know what you need to do to get this gift? And she said to me kind of things that people might say, well, I need to start doing the right things, and I need to start going to church, and I need to start praying and reading the Bible. And I said, nope, it's a free gift. You get it just because God gives it to you. All I have to do is accept it. That's God's free grace. That's how God justifies sinners like you and me. He says, I'll give you a whole new status. You can stand before me righteous if you accept it as a gift. And I remember as I said that, her eyes just like lit up. She's like, really? (laughs) It's like, I don't do anything. It's just a gift. Yes. That's what this passage is teaching us. Beautiful picture of what God does for you and me when we accept the clean clothes that he has for us. Now, how can God just simply give this to us as a free gift? It seems like then he's just ignoring sin and not doing anything about injustice. Well, that's the other side of the sign. So remember I said Joshua's a sign of God's people, but he's also a sign of God's priest. And so let's look at what that means. Now, uh, what he says to Joshua in, in 3 verse 7 is that he, he says this, 
If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, they, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Now, here it seems like he's saying the opposite of what we just saw. In other words, I give you this clean clothes as a free gift, but in order to stand here, you've got to, have, you've got to do all this and do all this. Well, we can see this from a, a, a different perspective. We could say, for example, that when God forgives someone, he also changes someone. That we can't accept from God God's forgiveness without accepting his transformation of us to make us what we're supposed to be. And so without repentance, there's no gift of forgiveness. We've got to want God to change us, and we've got to, and we've got to say we want to become what God has called us to become, right? But I don't think that's what's in view here. What I think he's saying is, you've got to keep this, what you're doing, you've got to do the things I've told you to do because you are representing what I'm going to do in the world. And as long as you do that, you can keep going. But don't mess it up. In other words, it's almost like he's saying, preach the gospel. Tell the good news about Jesus Christ. Tell it fully and accurately. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't mess it up. And then you will be my preacher. But he was preaching not so much by his words, though he would do that, but by his actions, by what he showed. So let's consider that. Again, it says that, listen, high priest Joshua, verse 8, you and your associates before you who are men symbolic of things to come. What he was showing them was that God would forgive them, that God would bless them. And it says that they pointed to a particular person. Listen to verse 8. I am going to bring my servant the branch. Now, again, that might not seem for us a normal way of thinking about Jesus as the branch, but that's a common term used because he is a descendant of, uh, from the root of David. He's a descendant of David, and that's how they wanted to think of him. But also because it kind of showed his, small, his, his humble origins. He's coming as a branch, but he gets, gets bigger, and it fills the whole earth, and so on. So the Messiah, the Christ that was to come, the Savior, is called the branch. Then he says in verse 9, See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Now here's one of the problems we get when we read these when we read these visions. We'll see like some of the clearest things possible that, that say, wow, this is something I could really hold on to. And then we'll hear something and be like, what in the world is he talking about? So what's the stone that's set before him? What does it have seven eyes on it? What is the inscription on it? Now I have some thoughts on those things. I'm not sure that I'm 100% right. I've read the variety of, of interpretations. Um, the stone perhaps it shows something secure and stable before that the forgiveness was going to take place. The eyes tend, could be interpreted as either on the stone, such as it understands all things, or the eyes of the Father on the stone. The, um, and then the inscription shows that it's costly or that the Lord puts his impress on it, and so on. I'm not overly concerned about precisely what those things mean, and what I want to challenge you to do, just by bringing this up, just to say, as you read the Bible, which I hope you're doing each day, is as you read the Bible, you're going to find stuff like that, and you're like, I'm not so sure about that. Here's what I would counsel you to do. Study them as you feel led, but if you don't understand something, hold on to those things that are clearer, 
Let them go into your hearts. Leave the rest to the Lord. He'll keep showing you new things as time goes forward. And bless the Lord for what he teaches you. But all that said, what we see is that the bottom line of this is stated in verse 9. What is all this stones and inscriptions and so on? What do they mean? Well, it means that the Lord is going to do something great. He says, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In a single day. So you see, this is what it was all about. God was going to remove the sin of the land. Not just Joshua, but he's going to remove the sin of the land and even by extension, the earth, the whole earth. Now you see, the, the men, Joshua and the other priests, they were signs and symbolic of things to come. And what they did is they performed sacrifices where thousands and thousands of animals were killed and burned on the altar. And he was teaching them that in order for them to be forgiven, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be an innocent victim that was experienced the justice and death so that people could be forgiven. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, recognized that all those lambs were pointing to the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ. And when he saw him, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the priests also were symbolic of things to come because there was the sacrifice and there was the priest who did the sacrifice. And what this was pointing to was the one priest who was coming, who would make that sacrifice so that the sin of the world, the land, the earth, could be forgiven in a single day. Now, in a way, this has a reference to what is called the Day of Atonement. In the, in the Old Testament, they celebrated the Day of Atonement once a year. And that was one day where the high priest, as the only person represented by the people of Israel, could go into the most holy place in the temple, could offer a sacrifice, and then the sins would be forgiven. And so that was the Day of Atonement. But the Day of Atonement was, was symbolic of things to come. And it was pointing to that one day when the sin of the earth would be taken away. The commentator Albert Barnes made an interesting comment on that. He said that there was a Jewish writer named Rashi who confessed that this one day is a mystery. He said, one day, I know not what day it is. But then Barnes said, ask any Christian child on which day was iniquity removed, not from the land only, but from all lands. And that child would say, on the day when Jesus died. That is the day that is spoken of here. Is the day that Jesus died. The author of Hebrews says, day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10, 11, 12, and 14. There's one more thing to say about what's happening here. So what's the effect of this sacrifice? The effect of this sacrifice, we could say, is peace. It establishes peace between God and man. God's wrath is coming, but when that sacrifice is made, the sin of the land is taken away, Lord sees the righteousness of the one who offered the sacrifice of himself, and now there is peace with God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how we can, we can be confident of it. It's a fact that we who have accepted that gift of God have peace with him. His wrath is turned away. But that doesn't mean we always experience that peace because another effect of the sacrifice is that we ought to experience that peace internally. We should not be so disquieted about things around us because we know that we have peace with God and our biggest problem is solved and the Lord is gonna take care of everything else. Now that can be hard to do. Uh, This week, I have to say I was struggling with guilt myself. It's not that I did anything particularly bad or, or particularly wrong. It wasn't like I fell into some grave sin, as far as I know, and my conscience is clear on that point. But I was just struggling with the way corruption affects my life in a variety of ways. In the past, how it can manifest itself in the future, how it's there in present. And when you say that, it's easy to, when you feel that, it's easy to feel like, man, I am standing before the Lord in filthy clothes. But what I had to say is like preaching this sermon to myself this week, no, but I stand in clean clothes, even though that guilt is loud in my ear, even though I can hear the accuser. The fact is that I have peace with God. And so that's what we have to do. We have to go beyond what our feelings may tell us. When we feel guilt, when we feel like we've done, feel the weight of our of the wrong things we've done and been and thought. And we need to say, no, we're clean. We're clean before the Lord. But there's a third aspect of this piece. I want you to listen very carefully to what it says in verse 10 because it's really interesting how he ends this. He says, in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree. In that day, each of you will sit under your vine, invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree. And that shows us the effect that the peace of God can have in our hearts. Because as long as we're filled with anxiety about our situation, about ourselves, about our guilt, it's really hard to push out and serve others. But when God says peace, When God says you're wearing clean clothes and we can see that in our hearts and our anxieties over our situation can be removed, then all of a sudden we're freed. Freed to love, freed to reach out, freed to show hospitality. And that's the way we can see how well am I taking in what God has done for me? In a way we measure it by how well am I reaching out to others? Now, once again, we should be careful here because we can, we, can, we can let that lead us into a spiral of guilt. Well, I need, to, I need to just work harder, reaching out to others. Yes, in some ways. But what we need to do, if we see ourselves not able to reach out, is go back and say, Where are, what is going on in my heart and life? Why is my anxiety so high? Why am I struggling so much? Am I experiencing the peace with God? We go back to these men who are symbolic of things to come and let it help us see the Jesus who has given us perfect peace so that we can experience the joy and peace of the Lord, which then we'll be ready to invite our neighbor to sit under our vine and under our fig tree. That's how this works. That's how this works.
And so, let me encourage you and challenge you today. God said, I will take away the iniquity of the land in one day. And that day has come, my friends. Jesus has died. Andy has risen. There's no reason for any one of us to stand before the Lord in dirty clothes. He offers to each one of you the free gift of clean clothes to stand before him clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. And all you need to do is accept that gift. If you haven't accepted that gift, if you're not sure where you stand before the Lord, get clarity on that. Accept the gift. Talk to me about it. See where you are. Consider it carefully. And consider where you are before the Lord. But if you have accepted it, then there's also a challenge to believe it more, to accept it more, to lean into that peace, to say, yes, I'm clean. I stand before the Lord. I, that day of redemption has come, and I am part of it. So let it rejoice our hearts that the Lord is for you, that the Lord accepts you, that you stand forgiven, that he's moving all things for your good. And let it calm your anxieties. Let it make you a little less concerned about how things will turn out because we know things are going in the right direction so that we have the margin in our lives to experience what God wants for us, which is to make us people who receive God's love so that we can give it to others and become those people who each of us, each of us, inviting our neighbor to sit under our vine and fig tree. Amen.